You're listening to the Transforming India podcast, jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and the Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, Director of the Raj Center and Professor of Economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a Professor of International Economics and Business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Praveen. Hi, Arvind. Delighted to join you. I've been reading a lot about your new book, India Unlimited, Reclaiming the Lost Glory in the Media, and I've also read the book myself. I thought in this episode we could talk about this very important book. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will want to hear directly from you, uh, the horse's mouth, as it were. That'll be great, Praveen. As an author yourself, I'm sure you will appreciate that authors love to talk about what they write. Of course, Arvind. And so let me begin the conversation by asking about the title of the book. What is the lost glory that the book would have India reclaim? And what is it that's unlimited about the country? Well, Praveen, the subtitle of the book refers to India's past. As you know, according to estimates provided by the great late economic historian Angus Madison, India was the largest economy in the world throughout the first millennium and then the second largest until as late as the beginning of the 19th century. In the book, I make the case that today India is at the cusp of reclaiming its prominent position in the world. I argue that India can easily grow at 8% per year or more over the next decade. And that will be enough to catapult the country into third place in GDP ranking. And that is just the beginning. India's long-term potential is a lot more and hence the main title, India Unlimited. Okay, Arvind. Now going past the title, can you tell our listeners what the central theme of the book is? How does the book propose to bring back India's lost glory? In the book, I argue, Praveen, that India's central problem is the creation of good jobs for the vast number of workers with limited skills, jobs that can employ these workers gainfully and pay them decent wages. Critics of the Modi government like to make much of the unemployment figure of 6.1% estimated by the National Survey Office in its Periodic Labor Force Survey or PLFS report of 2017-18. But if you look worldwide, unemployment at 6.1% is not a high figure. If the remaining 94% of the workforce is gainfully employed, I would be very pleased with the 6.1% unemployment figure. But the sad fact is that right from the independence, we have really put vast numbers of our workers into low productivity, low wage employments. We have made some progress in creating better jobs in the last 20 years, but we have a very long way to go along that dimension. And without that, we cannot create prosperity in which all get to share. Can you explain what you mean by low productivity, low wage jobs? In what way are our workers employed, but not gainfully employed? Sure, Praveen. Let us begin by looking at the broad picture of where our workers are. According to the same PLFS report that produced the 6.1% unemployment rate, 44% of the employed or some 205 million workers are in agriculture. The remaining 56% or about 265 million are in industry and services. Let us first look at productivity in agriculture. India has a total of 146 million land holdings. Of these, 70 million, almost half, are smaller than half hectare in size. 
And if we take the average size of these 70 million holdings, which is each less than half hectare, on average, it works out to less than a quarter of a hectare. So that, of course, means very low output generated on these holdings on average. So if we assume that agricultural output is evenly spread over the cultivated land, these 70 million farms produce just 41,000 rupees per year on average and this is the figure for 2017-18 for a family of five this gives you less than 23 rupees per person per day by comparison even our modest tendulkar rural poverty line works out to 38 rupees in 2017-18 farmers working these 70 million farms are not producing very much they are not gainfully employed according to any modern demetric even if we double or triple their income from these farms which is infeasible prosperous existence will remain a distant dream for them they need an exit from farming via better jobs in industry and services I wonder, Arvind, if you're not being maybe too pessimistic about raising incomes of farmers. What about agricultural marketing reforms, acceleration of agricultural growth, and diversification into animal husbandry, fisheries, horticulture as the means of raising farmer income? I mean, these are all avenues worth pursuing. And the government certainly has been working along those lines uh, in each of those areas. But none of these options would be enough to bring genuine prosperity to the farmers, especially the ones working these 70 million farms whose average size happens to be a little less than a quarter of a hectare. Marketing reforms work by shifting the share in agricultural income away from intermediaries to the farmers. But when the total farm income on half of the farms averages just 41,000 rupees per farm, how far can the marketing reform go? Even giving the entire 41,000 rupees to the farmer will not go far. In a similar vein, growth in agriculture since independence has averaged just 3% per year. Even during the 1980s, the best decade agriculture has witnessed in India, growth was 4.4% per year. Today, with self-sufficiency achieved in agriculture, any significant increase in output would depress prices correspondingly, depriving farmers from the gains. Likewise, I provide data in the book showing that the scope for diversification within agriculture is also quite limited. So I take it that you're saying, Arvind, that in the end, we have to pave the way for an exit of farmers currently dependent on the 70 million farms that are smaller than a half a hectare in size. These farms probably employ tens of millions of workers. Are our industry and services sectors capable of employing that many workers? That is a million dollar question, Praveen. I have to say that immediately this is not possible. Indeed, just as employment in small farms dominates agricultural employment, employment in small firms dominates industry and services employment. So using a term from history and political science, all of our sectors are balkanized. We're a nation of small farms and small firms. <laughs> yes, indeed, Praveen. That's an interesting way to put it. According to PLFS survey of 2017-18, only 16% of the workers in industry and services are employed in firms with 20 or more workers. Now remember that the common practice is to classify firms with less than 50 workers as small. So many of even these 16% workers are in small firms. At the other end, 57% of the workers in industry and services are found to be in firms with five or fewer workers. In the book, I provide data 
on value added and wages in these small enterprises. They turn out to be rather small by any reasonable metric. For instance, the average wage given by unincorporated enterprises, which are all very small enterprises, happened to be in 2015-16 just 6,250 rupees per month in rural areas and 7,670 rupees per month in urban areas. Now, for a family of five, that would work out to a little more than a thousand rupees or so per month. That's not a very large sum. By all measures, actually, these are small amounts. So a very large proportion of our workforce is employed at very low emoluments. Are you saying that small enterprises cannot create well-paid jobs? That would be a rather devastating conclusion since such enterprises are important sources of employment in every country. And so don't small enterprises provide gainful employment in countries such as the United States and China? You're right, Praveen. In principle, there is no reason for small enterprises to be sources of only low productivity, low wage jobs. And indeed, they provide good jobs in countries such as China and the United States. Insofar as I have been able to figure, significant presence of medium and large firms in any given sector is the key to productivity. When a significant proportion of the workforce is employed in medium and large firms, small firms also pay decent wages. For instance, work by economist Rana Hassan shows that in 2005, medium and large firms employed 75% of manufacturing workforce in China, but only 16% in India. The result was wages in small firms in China were 60% of those in large firms, but only 22% in India. When medium and large firms employ a large proportion of the workforce in the given sector, labor market for small firms tightens. More importantly, small firms then serve as ancillaries to medium and large firms or have to compete against them. Either way, that forces greater discipline on them and forces greater productivity. In effect, when medium and large firms, which must compete in the global economy, define the ecosystem, small firms are also forced to raise productivity to survive. And that, of course, means higher wages for their employees and workers. So the bottom line, according to your book, is that India needs more medium and large firms. Exactly, brother. And this is particularly necessary in the labor-intensive sectors. In capital-intensive sectors such as automobiles and machinery sectors, technology often forces at least some minimum scale. It is labor-intensive sector where we lack medium and large firms. These are also sectors that are employment-intensive. So if we undertake reforms that create conditions for the emergence of medium and large firms in labor-intensive sectors, we can capture the world markets in these sectors and create well-paid jobs in much larger numbers. Above all, the process will also raise productivity and wages in the smaller enterprises in these sectors, as happened in China, and is also the case in the industrialized world, uh, such as the United States and a number of European countries. So your key message is that India needs more medium and large firms in labor-intensive sectors, and that surely makes practical sense. We are in a capital-scarce country, but we are investing our scarce capital in capital-intensive sectors, such as petroleum refining, automobiles, and machinery. What we should be doing instead is to spread our scarce capital over a much larger proportion of our workforce, which means investing in medium and large firms in sectors such as apparel, footwear, furniture, kitchenware, and numerous other light manufacturers. Would that be a reasonable interpretation of your argument in the book? Praveen, I could not have said it better. If there is one take home from the book, it is what you have just said, that we need to invest in medium and large firms in the labor-intensive sectors. So if I understand your argument correctly, the process will work something like the following. 
the emergence of medium and large firms in labor-intensive sectors will pull a non-trivial proportion of workers out of micro and small enterprises. That will tighten the labor market for micro and small enterprises, forcing them to improve labor efficiency. That in turn will allow them to raise wages as well. And rising wages in these enterprises will pave the way for farmers currently working half hectare or smaller farms to exit and take jobs in industry and services. That is exactly the argument I make in the book, Praveen. Every country that has successfully transformed from primarily rural and agricultural economy to an industrial urban one, be it South Korea or Taiwan in the 1960s to 1980s, or China more recently, has done so in this manner. For example, the proportion of workforce employed in industry and services rose from just 30% in 1960 to 80% in 1990 in South Korea during these years. And during the same years, that is 1960 to 1990, real wages steadily rose at 10% annually. Even though South Korea had hardly any anti-poverty programs worth the mention during these years, extreme poverty was virtually wiped out over these years because much of the workforce came to be employed at decent wages. So what does India have to do to shift investment into medium and large enterprises in labor-intensive sectors? Well, Praveen, that is the subject of two-thirds of the book. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So our listeners will have to read the book to get the roadmap of reforms that I recommend. Okay, good deal, Arvind. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are somewhat enlightened now on the kind of structural transformation that India needs. Congratulations again, Arvind, on the publication of the book, India Unlimited, Reclaiming Our Lost Glory. Signing off, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insight at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.